Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. Hey, everybody. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I am your host, Sean Dustin. This is your first time listening. Welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Today, I got a great guest for you. Uh, My buddy Benito over from uh, Clubhouse. Yes, yes, yes. Another Clubhouse uh, guest. I get a lot of folks from there. There are some interesting people on Clubhouse. I, I got to tell you, if you're not over on Clubhouse, I would highly suggest you make your way over there because there's a lot of good conversations going on uh, of all kinds of different things, not just, you know, uh, the stuff that I'm into, but, you know, anything, anything you could be into is over on Clubhouse and they have great conversations and you should go there. Uh, what else do I got? So I, I, I got to. I got to confess here. Um, I got this. uh, I was going through my uh, what's it called? I was going through my my reviews and I saw my first bad review. I got I got one and it was somebody who called me a, a right wing nut job. And I was just, I was okay. And it was because I think I made a reference to the, the vaccine or the shot as a, um, as a, uh, a death shot or death jab or something like that. And, you know, it is true. People have died of, uh, after they've gotten that, that, uh, that shot. So, I mean, that's not, you know, factually, um, incorrect, but no, no, in no way, shape or form am I a right wing, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm actually politically homeless. So, uh, I don't really subscribe to either of those. And, I, you know, I, I just, I think they're, I think they're all corrupt. So I just, I had to, to, to share that. Uh, we're going to bring Benito in here in just a moment, but if you are liking what you're hearing from this show and, uh, you want to help support it, uh, whether it's, you know, telling a friend, uh, sharing the show on your social media, uh, sharing it with friends, family, you know, giving me a shout out, say, Hey man, you might want to check out this show. I'd pre, I would greatly appreciate it. And there's also, uh, opportunities too. If you would like to, uh, support the show monetarily, there's ways that you can go about doing that. And you can find those in the, uh, description or the show notes. All that information is there. The website is being worked on right now. So it was, uh, it, uh it's being worked on. Um, trying to figure out that whole uh, WordPress thing. So <laughs> give me some time. And if you're somebody out there that actually knows how to do WordPress and uh, would like to help, uh, help me out, 
feel free to uh, shoot me an email at nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com. All right. So here we go. My buddy Benito. Benito, what's happening, brother? Hey, how's everybody going? Thanks for having me. No, man. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for, you know, giving me some of your time this evening and how I know I'm going to, I'm going to give everybody a little bit of backstory as to how I know you and how we came to, uh, you know, be in the same space on, on the show. So I was on clubhouse and I was in one of the rooms that I usually go in, uh, you know, with Shep, uh, Shep Amp, Amp, what's his last name? Ampiris? Shep and Bellis. Yeah. Ambellis. And uh, he's a documentary filmmaker, and you know Benito talks in there, not a lot, but you know when you do speak, you you speak about things, and you speak about them very passionately, and also you're super authentic, and that's what what kind of drew me to you. And then the uh, the other side of that was you had mentioned a couple of things, you know, from your past and your story, and that like really lines up with. Um, you know, my show has, as it started, nowhere to go but up. And that was, you know, to tell people stories, um, of, you know, where, when they had nowhere to go but up, how did you get, how did you get through it? And, uh, you know, how can you, um, you know, share that with, uh, with the listeners? And so, first of all, why don't you, uh, let everybody know, um, a little bit about you, a little, little backstory, you know, where'd you, where'd you grow up? Um, where, uh, where do you live? You know, not your address or anything like that, but like, you know, general like area that you're in and, uh, and then we'll get into your story. Well, I was born and raised in West Texas, uh, somewhere between, uh, Amarillo and, uh, Odessa. Uh, our population is probably like 250,000. It's not bad. It's a good, uh environment but um and that's like back in the, that's like up in the panhandle right is that what they call that area yes they call it the panhandle all right all right so got a funny story for you i i, I uh and i promise i'll let you get to your story but that's the only place in texas that i've ever visited was amarillo and there was a lot of nice people there um i every store that i went to yeah people were just nice as can be Hi, hey, hey, y'all. I was like, oh, my God, this place is so cool. Anyways, go ahead. I sure, I wish it was like that back in the 80s. Um, and I'll get that, get to that in a minute. But uh, I was born and raised here, and uh, it's flat land. It's okay to raise a family. Now it is. And back in the old days, it was. Uh, but in the 80s, it was really bad. Uh, it was full of gangs and drugs and crime. Matter of fact, uh, the news media, it also came out in world news that uh, here in West Texas, we were at the top five of the most crimes in the United States. I think we were fifth. And so it was really bad to where even the news media from here would go out and search for the gang members and uh, interview them. Because I remember I was once interviewed by the news media. 
And what, and, uh, and, and what did you say? What, what was the interview about? I didn't say anything. It was my buddies, the ones that were doing all the talking. But what I remember is that they were asking him something about, you know, what do they do? What do, what do we do? What are we doing? And, and, you know, why are we, you know, gang members and stuff like that? And, you know, they were being just smart, smart asses. And, uh, laughing about it. I don't really remember much of it. I was only like 15 years old. So that was a long time ago. That's a, that's actually a, a good question though. You know, why, yeah. why do, why do young, young males, actually females too, they, they, they do as well. Um, why do they gravitate towards, towards gangs? What's the, right. uh, what's, what's the component? What's the, uh, the mechanism by which, you know, there, there's a correlation between all of them that, that bring them to that. I mean, is it a, is it a number of different things or is there? Yeah, it's a number of different things. One of the things that I do remember is that we run the show here, not in any kind of words, but, uh, we run the show and, you know, F this and F that, you know, talking about other gang members, you know, and that, that's kind of the way it went. But yeah, you know, um, it was so bad that, uh, there was a group that was called the Brown Berets. It was a Mexican organization that came out here, and some of them were ex, uh, ex, uh, prison, ex cons, and, uh, and they would come to the schools because they wind up in our school. And this was in elementary, when I was in elementary. We were so bad in elementary that they had to send for the Brown Berets to see if they could do something with us. And I remember going and we were calling to the cafeteria with the principal and the vice principal. And there was these guys that were sitting down, like five of them. And they had on like a, like a military uniform, but it was a brown hat. And uh, and so we were wondering what the heck's going on, and uh, they talked with us, and and they were about for the better for our for the city uh, Mexicans get along, wanting the Mexicans to get along with each other and quit killing killing each other because that's what re- what was really happening back in the eighties here uh, the main gang. Uh, the main gangs were Mexican. And you had, you know, like the Eastsiders, and you had the Southsiders, and you had the Northsiders. Um, and we were really killing each other, hurting each other. But that's the way I grew up. You know, since I was eight, nine years old, everybody was violent. Well, then I'd have to go back to when I was living with my grandmother and grandfather. They started raising it. Yes. Where is is your dad in the picture at all in this or? No, my dad. There's no real dad. I had a stepdad. Okay. And okay. Uh, yeah, he was the one that taught me. Oh boy, I wish I had time to tell that story, because he was the one that taught me everything. He taught me how to be mean, and fight, do drugs, uh, be a womanizer. And he told me at nine years old that he was going to make me into a man. 
and uh, and he made me drink alcohol and smoke weed, do drugs, and uh, I was like, he's trying to teach me how to be a man? And not to mention my mother, she was also mean. She used to come at me with a belt buckle, would beat me almost to death, or come at me with a butcher knife and try to kill me. And not to mention that my sisters was also mean. And I was, and I had, you know, they had brought me back from Houston, my grandmother and my grandfather, and get, had to give me over to my mom and my stepdad, and I was devastated. And what it wound up happening, uh, they turned me into a beast. And uh, I always said when I was eight or nine years old that there would come a day that I was going to hurt my mom and my dad, in which I did at about 14 or 15 years old. And so I had been in gangs since I was like nine years old, since I came back from Houston, when my grandmother gave me back to my mom. So basically all of that, <clears throat> all of that, uh, that, that pent up anger and rage and, and everything that you were feeling from the kind of abuse that you were receiving from both, both of them, um, mm -hmm. I would imagine, um, <clears throat> just kind of came to a head. Yeah. I mean, it, it changed me. My grandmother raised me to be, I was a good boy. And when, when that happened to me and I was devastated, they took me away from my grandmother. I hated everybody. I wanted to kill everybody. I hated my mom. I hated my stepdad. I hated my sisters. And then I started hanging around with the, with the, with the kids in the hood. And there was already a gang there, so I joined it. And so I uh, started getting tattooed, you know, drinking, getting high. And there I went. It just went from bad to worse. And as I became older, when I started, uh, matter of fact, when I was in in, uh, in junior high, uh, I uh, I did something really bad that I had one of the woodwork shop teachers on the on his knees begging for his life, and I had a gun on his head, and I'm only 15 years old, and I shot at him and I shot at the principal. And so the word got out. So when I went to high school, the principal called the principal at the high school and told him all about me. And so when I, he brought me into his office and told me he knew all about me and asked me, when will I turn 17? And I told him the date, my birth date. So the day that I turned 17, he went to my class and uh, did his finger come here. And he said, get out of my school. I don't want you here. So I was kicked out without even doing anything at 17. And then it still went from bad to worse. Then my brother was shot and killed in front of me. It was my gang gang rivals that killed him. And then my drug dealer uh, shot and killed my, uh, my mother. My sister had her face and throat slashed. She survived. You know, you can even imagine what... Uh, the rage that I went into. So was, was, was that a, uh, was that like a, a hit, you know, or a retaliation for something? Or, I mean, what, what, how did, were all those separate incidents or were they all kind of tied together? No, they, they were all separate incidents, different years, different timelines. 
But my brother's death was a trap. The trap was for me. And, uh, um, man, I'm telling you, I wish I could get into that story, but it's a long story. It'd take a whole hour itself. But I was set up. And my brother was a married man. He had three kids. And his wife hated my guts. And she would say that someday I was going to get him killed. And But he believed in me. And he was always trying to uh, lecture me in the good way. And I never forget. And I wish he was still, still alive. That I, I remember the things that he would tell me. That, you know, to grow up, to take care of, of my mother and... Uh, and you get a job, you know, those are not your friends. And uh, he was always trying to be there for me, and and I would never listen. But then uh, at one time, I did get a job, and that's when I went to go pick him up, and I took him with me, and I wound up getting him killed. Not, I, I didn't mean to, you know, but I didn't know that I was being set up. So did... Uh... So were you were you the the one that the one that was there to to hear his last words? Is that was right in no. front? Was that right in front of you or? He heard my last words. I told him. I was trying to. I was elbowing him, and I said, "We got to go. We need to go." Because I, I I had already seen what what was happening, and then I felt the sense of evil and death. And I knew something was going to happen. Because when we went inside the house, I looked back, and I saw one of them lock about four or five dead boats in the doorknob in a, in a chain. And I, it just ran through my mind, this is a trap. And then I seen him pull out a gun and put it in his waist. And then I looked over here, and I knew a little bit about these. Uh, these were gang rivals that we were we had made a peace treaty and that's where the brown berets come in as well they were about peace and they brought us together we didn't sign anything it was just a verbal peace treaty and uh it didn't work and uh my brother got killed they shot him six times and then they stabbed him while he was on the ground when the guns came out, it was four of them and just me and my brother. And when the guns came out, uh, I didn't have a gun with me. My brother had a, a nine Glock on him. And uh, everybody started pulling guns out. And I ran to the door to uh, run to my car to get my gun. But I remember when he locked the door. And I... Turned to my left and I saw a window and I, I dove through the window and ran to my car looking for my gun. And uh, it wasn't there. The ambulance came, the police came. I uh, went to the front door. There was still, there was more gang members that had came. And I looked inside and I saw my brother being put on a stretcher and, and another one of them guys uh, laying over the sofa because um, my brother got one of them. And I stood there and I watched my brother and they had taken his shirt off. And I looked and I said, 
and I remember I said, "What is that?" There was punctures in the in his top front dorsal, and there was blood coming out. And then the the paramedics would wipe it off, and the blood blood come back out. And I said, "Those look like knife wounds." But I remember that my brother got shot on the side, and so then I kind of seen those bullet holes, and then I seen the uh, the uh, stab wounds on his stomach and his chest, and then I looked at his face, and his face was beat in. So after I jumped out the window, they continued to beat him down and stab him, and he was still alive because they told me that he didn't die till he was in the ICU. Wow, man. Um, so I would imagine that you probably felt some sort of a, a responsibility, um, you know what I mean, for that. And did you, if you did, was that sort of like the beginning of your your kind of spiral? Or, I mean, you were already kind of going down a, a path, but, I mean, did that, like, intensify it and speed up the process? Yes, most definitely. It was World War Three. now. I was already a gang member, so I told my gang buddies, this is what we're going to do. And uh, we went out, and we looked for them. And uh, and it was on. I mean, I can tell you fights after fights after fights all over Lubbock. And, uh, and uh, many more got you know, hurt, many more got killed, many went to prison. So, yeah, it, uh, all that did was just uh, made it worse. All right, so let's move to the, uh, to your, to your mom and, uh, watching that happen. Now, your relationship was strained, right? Like, you, did, did you, did you still love your mom or, or were you like, you know what Man, I mean? Or was it a love-hate relationship? That's a good... Yes, there you go. You said it right on the money. It was a love... Um, how did you say it? A, like a love-hate relationship. Like, you love her because she's your mom, but you hate her because how she is. Right. And it, was, and it was both ways. We knew that we loved each other, but at the same time, there was just something about each other that we didn't like about, that we hated. Because, for one thing, my mom never told me she loved me. She never hugged me, but I do remember that she used to buy me stuff like, you know, clothes and stuff. And so I knew that, that she cared for me, but we were always at odds. We were always fighting. And, uh, and so then before she died, about a week, she was working at a bar, and I went in there. And she came up to me and hugged me, and she, like, freaked me out because she ain't never done that before. So I pushed her away, and I left. And then there was Valentine's that week, and I kept thinking about my mom, you know, why she did that. And I went and bought some flowers, some roses, and I took it to her. Went inside at the bar, and she saw me. She came up to me, and she hugged me, and I hugged her. And we told each other we loved each other, 
and a few days later, she was killed. Now, how do you do you know how she was killed? Was she into like was she into like shady stuff too? Well, we were all in organized crime. Okay, okay. So, we were dealing in wheeling, and it wasn't just like me and my mom, but there was a big group. Yeah. Matter of fact, when we got busted, it came out nationwide, and there was thirteen of us that got busted on sealed indictments. And so, um, so like later, uh, one of the guys that was my connection, my drug dealer, who I've known since I was 14 years old, he even asked me if it was all right that he was dating my mom. And I said, that's fine with me. My mom's a grown woman. She does what she wants. All I ask is you don't mistreat her. And he says, oh, you know me, Benny, I would never do that. I said, well, okay. And he wound up being the one that uh, shot and, and killed my mother. Wow. First of all, you, you should have asked him for some, uh, for some cows. <laughs> you know, if you're going to, if you want to date, date my mom, you're going to have to bring me some, uh, no, I'm just fucking around. Um, <laughs> That's uh, that's crazy, man. I, I, I ran it. I the first time I ever ran across that, where the parents and the kids were doing the like into the same drugs, and were were getting high with each other, was uh, in Vegas, and it was the strangest thing because like that's the last thing that I ever would think about was like wanting to hang out with my, like my parents and, and doing that. Like I would always go the furthest away and I would disappear. Actually, I would just disappear and, and, and go on, on missions. Um, what was your drug of choice? If you don't mind me asking, Oh boy, or is it all the above? Anything, anything to, to, to get me the best way to narrow it down. It was everything. I mean, even in the, at eight, nine years old, I started, or we started, me and my gang buddies, uh, sniffing gasoline. And from there it went, you know, and smoking weed and smoking cigarettes. Uh, and there it went from uh, doing a spray paint, glue, thinner. I was in the third grade, me and my buddies, and we used to sit in the back of the class and sniff thinner all day long. And the teacher, Mr. Halsey, who I, I don't know, I never forget that name. He used to let us. He let us because as long as we stayed out of his way. Yeah, if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're back there high, you're not bugging nobody. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, so, that's messed up. <laughs> so from there, it went to acid, you know, blue star, black cat, purple microdot. And then from there, it went to shooting up, you know. I remember one time shooting up like a 20 on a cocaine on one arm, a 20 of preludes on the other arm, taking a hit of acid, smoking a joint and drinking a beer and then get in my car. You know, I was, I guess I was about 18, 19 years old, getting in my car, cruising up uh, Broadway down downtown. And I had to pull over because I was tripping the whole, everything was melting the buildings, the sky, and I was, 
uh, having like uh, some kind of a seizure. And about an hour later, I came to and, and I realized I was in front across the street of the police station. And I was like, wow. I turned my car on and, and left. I, you know what? I had a situation like that too where I blacked out and I was on a bunch of different shit. And I just, I guess I was foaming at the mouth and the, the, the party I was at, they just put me in a room to go to sleep. Right. I mean, I, I was probably OD. I'm pretty sure I was. And somehow I managed to wake up the next morning and I was like, like, what happened? They're like, I don't know. And and then I, and then I, I immediately got high again as soon as I'm like, well, where's, where's the shit? (laughs) Yeah, and I always thought that'd be the worst of the worst, and man, unluckily, it wasn't. Unfortunate, it wasn't that. It was not the worst of the worst. I had something even worse happen to me later on in the future, as an adult. Then I got hooked on cocaine smoking net. Time I was at the, I was, I guess I had like two thousand dollars in my pocket. I had already smoked like five hundred dollars worth of cocaine and uh, and my heart was beating so bad I should have been dead nobody's heart can beat that fast that much and live through it and uh, and still I wanted more and so uh, I called my dealer to bring me some more and I was waiting for him and I looked out the window and I saw the grand reaper I saw the devil waiting for me to die and let me tell you something. After that experience, I ain't never touched drugs again. So that was about how how old were you about around that time? That happened like like fifteen years ago. Okay, okay. So, did any of this? Any of these things, because you you said that you'd taken a couple of shots at, at some some teachers and a principal, and not, did anything ever happen to you on that, or no? Oh man! Like you yeah, know, I, like I, like I, I would, the law. You know a, what I mean? Did the, like where, where where does the law come in now? This is that's a, I'm surprised you asked me that because uh, to me it's kind of funny. Uh, I went to the house. I live with my mom. I'm only 15 years old, and uh, and I was thinking about, man, I wonder if they're going to come over here look for me, and I started thinking, you know what, I remember my little sister has a toy box, and she was playing with a play gun that looked like a real gun, and when I was thinking about that, I heard a bunch of cars, er, 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 doors shutting. And I looked out the window. I said, oh, hell no. It's the police. And so I ran to my sis, little sister's room and went in through, started going in through her toy box. And lo and behold, right there, bam, I found it. And I hit the, the real gun and put the fake gun in my pocket. And so by that time, they're already knocking the door really hard and my mom lets them in. Where is he? Where is he? And I come out. What? Y'all looking for me? So where's the gun? Where's the gun? What do you mean? What are you talking about? 
oh, that gun? And I pulled it out. Oh, I said, it's just a play gun. And they grabbed it and they took me to the school. And there, there they were, the principal and that workshop teacher. And that workshop teacher, he just stared me down real ugly. If looks could kill, I would have been dead. And so I'm showing them that it's, it was just a play gun. And then the, the shop teacher is like, no, hell no, it wasn't a play gun. I saw it. It was a real gun. And then the, and then the principal says, well, where did the shots come from if it's a play gun? I said, oh, yeah, we play another game, like a, like a game called chicken. We get these straws, and we put bullets on the end of them, push them in, and then we throw them up in the air. And as they fly up in the air and come down, they'll hit the bottom of the bullet, and they'll pop. That's how I did that part. And everybody thought it was like I was, that was a crazy story, but they didn't have nothing else. So they, they, they either believed it or not, and they didn't do nothing to me. <laughs> that's pretty, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, good story there. Um, all right. So at what point did you end up, uh, getting, uh, did you ever, did you ever go to prison? Yeah. I did six years straight. Six years straight, and what was uh, what would you end up uh, going down for? For aggravated assault. When I uh, went up to the judge, he he looked at my record. My my folders were like they were like five to six inches tall, and he said, "What the hell are you doing walking the streets?" And I had stuff like. 20 aggravated assault charges, uh, retaliation, uh, burglaries, DWIs, everything that you can think of. And he was wondering how in the world that, that I should have already been in prison for life. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, it's just the grace of God. And not, and not to mention, look, not to mention, I also got accused of a lot of things that I didn't do. I mean, one time I had to plead guilty on a theft charge that I didn't even do because somebody blamed something on me that I didn't do. So if somebody did something to me like that, I just go up to them and and, uh, knock them out or do something to them. And so, yeah, I hurt a lot of people. And I regret... A lot of it didn't have to happen, but nobody could even look at me without me attacking. That's all I ever knew. And the hardest part for me when I became a Christian is who I was, my attitude, my temper. That was so hard to do that I would shed tears because it was so hard. And I wanted to be a better person. And I wanted people to like me, like my family. And then I fell in love with my wife and kids. And they they had a hit on me at one point because uh, I got out of the Mexican mafia. And so I didn't want my family to get hurt because they came after me while I was with my family at one time. And so I had to leave town. 
in order to have things cool down and trust God that he would protect me. And today, I, I don't even have to look over my shoulder anymore like I used to because I trust God. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But have you forgiven yourself? I say that. Sometimes I say that that I, that I know I have to forgive myself and I forgive myself. But then that, that thought comes and says, have I really forgiven myself? You know? And I do believe that, you know, and, and I talk to God about it. And I have... You know, either I'm learning how to forgive myself. I don't look back. Sometimes I look back at the things that I've done that I should not have done. Those are the ones that really bother me the most. And those are the ones that I talk to God about. But now, if I hurt a gang member that hurt me or tried to hurt me, that doesn't bother me. I'm talking about things that I've done that shouldn't have shouldn't I have done? Like maybe hurt my mother, hurt my sisters, you know. And I always try to make it up to them now nowadays. And I believe that they've forgiven me, but they're not gonna forget. Or they or have they really forgiven me? So you had a sister, right, and you said that she'd gotten slashed across the face. Is she still alive? Yeah. Are you in yeah. contact still? Oh yeah, yes, uh, very much. She's that one's my twin sister. Oh, okay. so I was, yeah, I was always protected of my mother and my sisters, and and because I wasn't able to protect my mother when my drug dealer killed her, it was really upsetting to me. But I've always been protected of my sisters, even though uh, I used to be mean to them. Yeah, but I wouldn't, you know, we're, we're all, I mean, I, I can, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying in, in your story and, you know, thinking back on my own, <clears throat> uh, you know, struggles and stuff, um, you know, it's, it's a tough road, man. And, you know, forgiving yourself and, and moving on and changing the narrative in your head because for so long it's been one thing and you know you that's how you identified i identified as a just a bad person you know what i mean and that's how i you know that's that's what i thought of myself and so i just you know allowed that to continue and let the the prophecy be fulfilled right um and then you know trying to break out of that like you were saying it, it is tough um you know creating yeah. creating new habits and and you know, you know, knowing what your triggers are, especially for anger. Anger is a is a tough one, man. I, I've I've struggled with anger for a long time, and I'm not perfect. It still seeps out here every now and again. Um, but you know, it's uh, I I I feel you, bro. What I try to remember is that um, I may not be where I like to be, but I thank God that I'm not where I used to be. And there has been some progress, a lot of progress, you know. 
Yeah, that's the one thing that I, I, you know, when you talk, a lot of times you're called on to, um, you know, when something religious comes up or a religious perspective or something, you know, from the, from the Bible, um, there's been conversations that you get on. So you're, you're, you're a man of God now, right? Oh yeah. I'm a ordained minister and I'm ordained to teach prophecy. And do you want to know how it got all started? When my mother was murdered, when my mother was murdered, I had an encounter, two encounters. One, the first encounter, I had an encounter with a demonic entity. And it was, uh, it was a, uh, an angel of light, which was evil. Just like the Bible talks about that there are, there are angels of light and they're evil and uh, and Lucifer was an angel, an archangel, and that's who I saw. I swear, that's who he was. It was the devil himself as an angel of light, and he tried to kill me just through the presence, through his presence and the evil. Just like the presence when they killed my brother, that same evil presence was in in, in the presence in that room where I was when I had the encounter with that evil angel. And I looked at right in his face and I could see his face and he was looking right at me and he paralyzed me. And then he he hovered over me and he was going on three times and I was, I was actually dying. I could sense death and I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. The only thing that I could move was my eyes and I followed it. And with my life being at stake, I knew that I had to do whatever I needed to do because my life was at jeopardy. And I managed to say the name Jesus. As soon as I said that, it went away. But that did not stop the fear that it put in me because I couldn't go to sleep at night anymore. So like on the third day, uh, and this is right after my mother's murder, like a few days. So then this time I'm sleeping on the edge of my bed with the light on in the living room. And I opened my eyes again at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I saw another angel. But this time this angel was a good angel from God. And I, it was transparent because I kind of could see through it. And then all of a sudden it moved like within three feet where I was, just like that. And then I looked up at it and I couldn't see his face. And then I saw something in his hands and it was the same kind of vase that my mom had on both sides of her coffin. And what that angel told me telepathically that my mom was in God's care. And I said, no way. How is that possible? Because she was working at a club. But then God showed me later that God had mercy on my mother and my mother managed to call, call out to Christ Jesus right before she passed away after being shot. Wow. That's crazy, man. So I, I have a question. Did when, during all this time for you, did you ever feel like you were possessed in any way whatsoever? You know what, Sean? 
Most people are possessed, but they don't know it. There are billions and trillions of entities out there that go inside of people, and they, and they don't portray themselves to be bad. When they go inside of a person, they become each other. They, be, they take on each other's characteristics. An entity, appetite, is expressed through humans. And this is why you get a lot of people that commit a murder and they say that they heard voices. They are telling the truth. There, there are entities that are different. You have entities of lust. You have entities of murder. You have entities of drugs, hate, adultery. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. There's hundreds of different types. Well, the reason why I asked that is that I, I felt like that when, when I was going through my, my deal and <clears throat> I, it just, at one day it just went away and, yeah. you know, I, I've actually felt, you know, I, there's the one place that I lived, there was, there was a, a bad, um, a bad, whatever in spirit or entity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there, because there would be times when, when I would be asleep, and I'd be trying to wake up, and I'd be, I'd feel like I was being electrocuted, and somebody was sitting on me, and that I couldn't, I, I couldn't open my eyes, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't move, but I felt like I was being electrocuted, and there was pressure on me. Yeah, they're for real. Some of them, they are, they can appear, reappear. Some of them are, have a flesh body. Those can be killed. Some of them are spiritual. And even the spirituals can transform themselves into the physical. And you have all kinds. I could name you about 50 different types of races that there is. And they've been here for a long time. From the times of Noah, where God destroyed the earth of the Men of renown, the Gibberines and Raphaims and Nephilim and Trontoloids and Archeloids and Succubus. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And they're still here. And they inhabit people. And they can, uh, they can read our mind because they are telepathic. And one person can have up to 40 of these entities. But let me tell you what the Bible says. So the scripture says that once you're born again, you cannot be possessed because the Holy Spirit lives in that person now. It has been taken over. So they have to flee. But that don't mean that they can still uh, attack. Even though you're not possessed, they can uh, manipulate and uh, uh, what you might call it, uh, Oh, they can cause you to suppress. They can still suppress you. Uh, Okay. Yeah, they're still going to be around you, and they're still going to do what they can to to disrupt you. Yes. All right, hold on one second because my my thing is showing right a right error. So I'm going to change. I'm going to change storage things real quick. Okay, so that didn't end up working out. So I replaced the SD card, uh, ended up 
uh, pulling the file out, and I don't know where that file went. I either misplaced it or it uh, or I erased it. I can't find the the second part of that recording. So what we're gonna have to do is this is gonna be part one, and then I'm gonna reach back out to Benito and uh, we'll get him back on. And he wanted to talk some about uh, prophecies, anyways. So. Uh, we'll have him back on and, and uh, do that, do the second part of this and uh, close it out. Um, if you've been enjoying what you, you know, the content that you've been getting, feel free to, uh, you know, give me a rate, review, uh, share the episode with your friends, family, anybody who you think would uh, benefit from listening to this content or watching the content. Um, some of stuff I have on uh, YouTube and some stuff I have on um odyssey so anything that that youtube will censor uh i put on odyssey everything else will go on youtube and on odyssey so uh whatever you know it it sucks to have to go through all that but you know it is what it is um the, the website is still under construction i'm working on that as we speak i'm learning on the fly so uh bear with me while i try to get that together uh what else uh if you've Got anything that you want to reach out to me about? Got questions? Got a guest uh, suggestion? You got somebody who you think would make a great guest? Feel free to reach out. Uh, nowhere to go but up now at gmail dot com. And other than that, um, what else is there? What else is there? Uh, that's it for right now. So keep it one hundred. Stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue-collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.